It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. Microsoft clamps down on XP hackers, then saves the internet by breaking it. Also, a pizza-making robot, Oracle gets KG on Java. Your Wi-Fi light bulbs are leaking security. And your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now, episode 463, recorded Tuesday, July 8th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 191. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv/securitynow and use the offer code SN30. And by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus access to your files anywhere, anytime with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code Security Now and get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy and security online. I'm Father Robert Palliser, the digital Jesuit in for Leo Laporte, and of course, guiding us through the swampy mess that is electronic privacy. Is the one, the only, the purveyor of proper packeting, Mr. Steve Gibson. Steve, and so good to see you. At I, I had so much fun last week that uh, when they told me that I could do it one more week, I was just, I, I was beside myself. I was quite pleased too. I think it's great, and I was thinking, you know, you are technically a digitized Jesuit because you know all we're seeing is the result of that digitization process. Absolutely. So, You know, digital and digitized. And people have asked if I'm the digital Jesuit, where's the analog Jesuit? There actually is a Jesuit who goes by analog Jesuit. Uh, I think he started his moniker after me, so I'm going to sue him. <laughs> All right. Okay, now you want to talk about pizza? I did. I did. Okay, this is this is silly. I think the only way I could possibly tie this into security is when you get into a late night session of.、Uh, Packet prioritization and scanning. What kind of food do you look for? I mean, for for me, it's it's always pizza. And Jemmerby, if you could if you could jump over to my machine, this is a machine that some family filmed in Italy. It's a pizza vending machine. And when I mean pizza vending machine, it doesn't microwave a frozen pizza. When you when you choose your selection, within two and a half minutes, it will make from fresh ingredients a pizza and then cook it for you. I mean, that, that, wow. I mean, and you get to watch it. I mean, this is like food theater. I think that that's basically what this thing is.、Uh, so, I, I, I would. The reason why I wanted to show this is I want to enlist your help. If you could maybe convince. Oh, and and, and so we're actually、one. looking through the front pane yeah, of this, this machine. So they've deliberately made it visible so that people can see, like, oh, like that.、Like、there's the 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 flower for the dough at the top. Absolutely.、And、so it. Goes down and and kneads the dough and flattens it out and builds your pizza. And isn't that、wow. part of the fun of going to like an authentic pizza parlor? You get to see the pizza being made. I mean, it's one thing to have it delivered, but if you if you can see all the different processes that go into to turning raw dough and water into a pizza, 
Well, that's that's just kind of cool. And there's the yeah, oven. This thing could absolutely survive in Silicon Valley. It would be it would be in constant use. Now, one thing I can't find the clip, but evidently because it does have a menu screen, it has a touch screen that you you get to choose your pizza and your ingredients. It is running Windows XP embedded. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's another security angle. I want Leo to get one so we can attempt to hammer on it, maybe break in and hack ourselves some free pizza. You guys definitely need one. Now, if it's a legitimate XP embedded, it's secure through 2019. So you don't have to worry about hackers messing up your ingredients and, like, you know, giving you too much pepperoni. Not that that would ever really be a problem. I I, I don't think there is such a thing as too much. uh, Too much pepperoni is like too much bacon. I don't see that. I've never had too much pepperoni. Yeah. All right, now let's let's get on to something that's a bit more actual okay. security, in the real-world security, and that is a report from Encapsula. Now, Encapsula Network serves about 20,000 websites, and they've been collecting stats through, I think, since 2010 uh, is when they started looking at the amount of traffic flowing through their networks, specifically paying attention to the percentage of bots. Now, according to their latest study, which was based on 1.45 billion visits over a 90-day period, which geographically represented the entire uh, slate of world's countries, 249 countries, they found that 61-plus percent of all web tra- website traffic is bots. Uh, that yeah. kind of blew me away. I-, I know you've covered this on security now previously, but... I think it's a good reminder that uh, most of the traffic flowing on the Internet is not from human interaction. It's just, well, and when you think about all of the things we're doing now, which are services that are becoming uncoupled from, from like web browsing, there's, you know, so much more going on. And, of course, search engines are, you know, I mean, we sort of take it for granted that we can put any phrase in that we can think of. Basically, ask the Internet a question, and we just get relevant results. And I I remember, and I'm sure you do too, a time before Google, and actually the search engine I think we were using before then was AltaVista. That was my favorite pre-Google search engine. I loved AltaVista. Yeah, but... You know, the, the idea was there was all this stuff there, but you couldn't find it. Now we just take for granted the fact that if it's there, we can find it. But something has to have gone there first to browse around and pull all that information together. And, of course, those are bots. Those are spiders that are out link following the entire Internet. And I, I think, I mean, uh, there's... Almost never a time when Google's not crawling GRC. If I, I don't normally keep logs. I turn logs on if there's a problem. But just sort of being pro-privacy, I don't, if I don't need them, I don't have them. And, and of course, I delete them when I'm, when I'm through. But during times when something weird's been going on and I've turned logging on, I see Google bots, you know, walking around inside GRC. And I know when I bring a page up, I'm frequently surprised how quickly it appears in Google's index, which tells me since I put the page online, Google found it, meaning that somehow something came to my site and saw the page and added it to the index. And it's a matter of hours, which means, I mean, and my site's not super, super popular because Google does 
change bot visit frequency based on the popularity of the site. You know, so they're like constantly crawling news sites whose pages are constantly changing because that's the other thing they that, that Google looks at, and I'm sure other search engines do too, is when they revisit a page, is it the same? And so that sort of lessens their urgency on checking in more frequently. So, you know, there's a complex algorithms, but basically we can think in terms of the internet is constantly under the, the, you know, the, the traffic of bots. And, and, and as you said, we first mentioned this back in mid December. And I remember using the phrase, the bots are winning because <laughs> There are more bots than there are people now. I mean, well, by by far, they're they're well. If and if nothing else, they're tireless. They're out there constantly scouring. And didn't that chart also? Or you had some numbers about malicious bots, right? Versus yeah. just you know ha happy spidering bots. Absolutely. Now, so Spooky Spy in the chat room is saying, uh, "Don't fear the spider." And uh, yeah, absolutely, don't fear what you're talking about. Those those at those search engine bots that are going out, they're doing us a service. They're oh, making I things findable. Yeah, exactly. We want, I want them. Don't, them don't block them out. They're they're allowing people to find stuff on my site. Yeah. Right, right. And and according to this survey, most of those bots are actually good bots, quote unquote good bots. So they are the, the search engine bots. And then you've also got a percentage of those bots that are kind of neutral bots. They're the SEO bots. So companies that are offering services for SEO, they've got a way of poking around to find out what they should be labeling their content with. It's, it's kind of the gray area. It's not good. It's not bad. It might throw off some results. They've also found that there's actually been a decrease in the percentage of traffic related to spam. From 2012 to 2013, they dropped about 1.5%, from 2% to 0.5%. So that's a good thing. However, wow, yeah. They've also seen a rise in the percentage of malicious bots. About 31% of that traffic is directly from malicious bots. And within that 31%, you've got uh, you've got your regular DDoS bots, you've got your 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 bots that are aimed towards NTP and DNS uh, amplification attacks, and then you've got 8% of it that they're calling other, which I interpret it as that's the advanced, the, the advanced persistent threat bots, the ones that we know they're there, we don't know what they're doing, they're not exhibiting any behavior that will, will trip off any signatures, but it does seem that they, they have some sort of, they're allowing some sort of attack vector. Uh, and that's, that's the part that scares me. Not that there's a lot of bots, there's always going to be a lot of bots. Not that there's attack bots, of course there are attack bots. But there are bots that security professionals are looking at and saying, we don't know yet what this is for, and we probably won't know until they do their thing. You know, it's, it's just listening to you and imagining turning the clock back to the beginning of the Internet. It sounds like science fiction. It's, I mean, we're talking about, you know, this network that was originally built for people to click links to look at web pages to deliver information. Look how far it's gone. And it's gone into the realm of science fiction, of, of there being entities inhabiting. I mean, inhabit is not the wrong word to use. Inhabiting this network by installing themselves on autonomous machines so that they can then reproduce and find other <laughs> machines. I mean... They're inhabiting 
the internet. And, you know, we were, we were sure they're not self-aware, yet, as you said, they have purpose, which unless they are captured and dissected, we can't necessarily divine just from looking at their behavior. So, I mean, it, it, it's... It's science fiction. You're kind it's, of freaking it's, me it's, out, it's, Steve. It's, <laughs> <laughs> what if so, what if these are bots that were created by other bots, like second generation bots? Like now we're getting into science fiction. Well, technically, uh, there are polymorphic bots where one bot will encrypt itself so that it cannot be recognized, and then send that encrypted version out. So bots are reproducing. Vari- deliberate variations of themselves that will not be identifiable where they might be. So, you know, I mean, there is there is reproductive behavior and, you know, and, and like genetic variation to see whether it survives better in the wild. I mean, <laughs> and of course, the ones that don't get caught uh, tend to uh, perpetuate their pattern. So, you know, it's evolution on the internet that's again that's what's got me worried the ones that don't get caught because (laughs) we had Raphael mudge on uh, on uh, this week in enterprise tech a few weeks ago and he was showing us some of the research that he's been doing into advanced persistent threats and he was showing us bots and malware that could perfectly mimic regular network traffic so that even if you were watching it you wouldn't be able to figure out that it was doing something bad Uh, yeah so i mean and, and that this study would not be able to, to see any of those. It, it would not include any of that traffic because that just looks like DNS traffic or FTP traffic. Well, and, and it disguises itself so that it sends it out with the rest of the traffic. So you're not getting a traffic spike. So you can't find it that way. And the, the amount of intelligence that is being put into creating some of these bots, it, it defies imagination. I mean, they've, they've really got it down to a science where if you run any sort of large network, you really don't know if you've got something running inside. I was just I was just looking this morning. I was doing a packet capture of of some traffic from Paul Thorat's site, the Win Super site for Windows, uh, following up on one of the questions in today's Q and A, uh, and because it was about whether uh, uh, Paul's forms were secure or not relative to LastPass, and the, for two, two things. One was the cookie content was complete gibberish. I mean, and, you know, as here I am, a security conscious, security aware person inspecting the traffic, and I expect the cookie contents to be gibberish. I, I recognize that they're supposed to be opaque tokens, and, and I'm a little annoyed by how much there is and how big it's grown. But, you know, it's not supposed to be understandable. So it passes my scrutiny. I go, oh, yeah, look at that disgustingly huge cookie blob. But, you know, I don't look any further. And similarly, remember now that the web is running on JavaScript more and more. And JavaScript is code. And so when huge wads of it pass by, you just sort of go, okay, well, you know, I mean, who's going to take the time to deobfuscate it and work through exactly what it does? And when you do, it probably has links to other JavaScript pieces that it pulls together from other. I mean, so, I mean, it, it almost becomes in an insurmountable task if you 
absolutely have to understand everything about what something is doing because just sort of through convenience where people are pulling pieces together there are sites where you know when i enable scripting suddenly um no script will show 30 other domains which it's now blocking which were revealed but when i allowed the main script to run that was invoking all kinds of other stuff. I mean, analytics and tracking and little, you know, blobs coming in, that, you know, like, like online JavaScript pieces of toolkits that, that the web developers have just used for convenience. And they're not malicious, but they're just, they're just like pouring in from every direction. And so it's like, oh, my God, how can anyone actually know what is going on? And the fact is it really has gotten away from us. At this point, you know, it's not it's not clearly doing overt damage, but do we are we in control any longer? No. We've lost control of this thing that we've built. I think that's uh, enough freaking out of the audience. Uh, they're, they're starting to hate <laughs> so, us in the chat room. I, all I can say is uh, everyone after this show, go watch The Matrix, the, the first one, not the next two, and just realize that uh, that's probably next year. <laughs> so... We've got a Patch Tuesday to talk about. Microsoft was also, they also fumbled a web, a web domain uh, takedown. I just didn't get it into our, into our show last week, so I, didn't, I wanted to cover it because it was just an interesting point. Uh, some news about Oracle's maybe ending Java's support under XP, but maybe not. Um, Google just finding some more unauthorized Google certificates in the wild. Uh it's a cautionary tale, not that we, I mean, with this, we've already set people up for some, from, for, for some caution, uh, but an, an, another one about just sort of the general problem I think we're going to have with the so-called Internet of Things. Um, a little bit of follow-up on last week's announcement of our intentions to, to open up the whole topic of cloud storage solutions and a bunch of miscellaneous uh, stuff, or not, not, but not too much, and then a Q&A. So, uh, great podcast today for number 463. That's an absolutely great lineup. That's Mr. Steve Gibson. SG, what's your, I'm sorry, what's your Twitter address again? I, I, always, I always want to put Steve Gibson, but I know it's SGGRC. Yeah. That's right. He's the man who provides us all the uh, tools that we need to keep everything running, including Shields Up and my personal favorite, SpinRight. Now, Steve, I, I talked about this last week. That um, I was having some issues with an SSD, and I, I still I, I want you to explain to me how this actually works. Someone told me that the throughput issue I was having with some of my uh, older Samsung SSDs could be solved by running Spinrite in level two, and I I was thinking in the back of my head I'm like this is ridiculous. It's an SSD. It's not a rotating drive. That's stupid. I ran it, and it by golly it worked. I how does this work? What magic did you bake into Spinrite to to revive SSDs? What what we would like to believe is that because they're solid state, they're they're like RAM where when you write the data, you are sure you're going to get it back. Now, even RAM is not perfect, which is why there's parity in in one case, uh, just to, to to find an error 
when it's read back. We have parity and non-parity RAM. And there's also ECC on RAM when, when you know, really, for example, space shuttle RAM will have ECC because you, you, can, you can have at the quantum level, you can have bits that don't read back correctly. Well, the situation is far worse with SSD. Um, essentially, the, the technology of SSD is like dynamic RAM, where the, in order to get the, the bits small enough, dynamic RAM uses capacitors to store the, the, the bits as ones and zeros. Just it uses electrostatic charge. And that tends to bleed off over time just due to leakage because the cells are so small, the capacitance isn't large enough. And, and it's a series of trade-offs. And that's why you have to do so-called refreshing of dynamic RAM. You've got to come back and read it before it's bled all out, before the data has sort of leaked away to a point where you can no longer differentiate the ones and the zeros. So you keep coming back and reading it and rewriting it to like to to recharge the little capacitors with their data. Now, freaky as it sounds, that's the same technology as in SSDs. It's a much slower leakage, but it's still doing that. And and so it it actually an SSD is just a huge plantation of little capacitors where charge is essentially stranded out on a plateau and um, a field effect transistor is able to sense the field, the electrostatic field created by that charge. But over time, they, the, these cells weaken. And, and the important thing to understand is that if we only need, if engineers only needed to make a, you know, a 1K SSD, oh my God, it would be bulletproof, absolutely reliable. We could do that because with so few bits, the bits could be so large that they could be reliable. But, you know, the world runs on economics and and competition. And so we've got multiple vendors who are competing with each other to get the highest density and the lowest cost. What that means is the smallest bits. So just as we have pushed hard disks to the point where they are now using error correction all the time, that is, you can't, you often cannot read a sector correctly on a hard disk because they, the engineer said, well, you really don't have to. We can correct it as long as it's not too bad. So although, I mean, it's really cringeworthy because if this is our data and, and we care about it, but the same thing has happened with SSDs. The engineers have pushed them so far that they're operating more in an analog fashion, not such, not just one and zero, but somewhere between one and zero. So what Spinrite is able to do is it's able to turn off by talking to the drive, it turns off some of the the sort of oh don't worry about this we'll take care of it stuff in order to show the drive 
when it has a problem which you would otherwise ignore. That forces the drive to address the fact that that this area is no longer stored safely. That, that, that is, some of the bits are beginning to wander toward an indeterminate state. And that causes the drive to rewrite them firmly, whereas, but that takes a little bit of time. See, SSDs don't write very quickly, as we know. They only read quickly. The reason is they actually have, there's a layer of insulation between this little floating island and they have to they have to ramp up a high voltage and push electrons through an insulator using high voltage in order to recharge that island well that's why there's a limited number of writes that an ssd can do because every time you push electrons through that insulation it weakens the structure of the insulation a little bit and so that creates a lifetime on the number of times you can do that. But so what essentially what SpinWrite does is it allows the SSD to be more picky. And instead of being lazy and using error correction to fix the sector, which is becoming weak and taking more time, it says, no, let's like right now, let's fix this. And so the SSD rewrites that sector which was, which was using error correction so that it no longer needs it, which then speeds up the execution in the future. So, I mean, there is, you know, we just plug these things in and format them and go. But there's an incredible amount of technology, you know, under the covers. See, now, now that you say it, it makes so much sense. You know, rather than the drive <laughs> trying to fix the errors on the fly as it's reading and writing, right, SpinWrite right. just goes in and says, you know what, I'm going to fix everything for you and you're golden. And, and that right. means I, that's, that it would explain why suddenly I get all my, my performance back. It, it wasn't necessarily that the, the drive was damaged. It's just that the drive was busy. But because the way that flash drive, uh, SSD right. drives work, it didn't want to do all that, that maintenance because in doing that, it's actually wearing itself out. I, I like that. That's right. fantastic. It just, it just wanted to defer that. Oh, now, Steve, I, I would never have figured that out. So uh, pe people need to go and, and get SpinWrite. This, this actually is brilliant because I had thought that once the era of the SSD had been upon us, that SpinWrite, which has been a great friend to me in my troubleshooting days, would go the way of the floppy disk. But uh, this just shows you that you never know when the technology from a brilliant man might come in handy. Where can they find SpinWrite <laughs> if they, if they want to get a copy for their SSD? Uh, grc.com slash spinrite or you can put spinrite s-p-i-n-r-i-t-e into google it'll take you there uh and uh you know it's been now more than 20 years we've been selling it i am i'm working on wrapping up the work on squirrel and i have some some fun news about that uh, I got a tweet from someone this morning who's been playing with it because there are people's implementations are beginning to come alive. Uh, so that gets done. Then I get back to, to SpinWrite. I'll be producing 6.1, which will be a free update for everyone who has SpinWrite 6. We are at that point going to stop bringing everybody else along from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, really. Um, because it's been we've had SpinWrite six now for ten years, and that seems like you know enough time for people to to update, and it simplifies things for us if we're not continually trying to bring people forward from twenty years ago. Um, <laughs> no, Steve. And no, I bought my copy twenty plus <laughs> years ago. I it should work today. I mean, we've got we've got no analog to that. <laughs> 
thankfully. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it's because, as, as you say, there's a clear future for it that I I fully intend to then move to Spinrite 7. There will be something following 6, but I want to get I want to get Spinrite 6 caught up to date with the the latest BIOS's uh compatibility with Mac uh and and uh UEFI stuffs and also so so that people don't have to like change BIOS settings in order to get it to go. It'll just run in whatever your environment is, so it'll just be easier to use. I want to do that sort of as an interim measure before I, I start in on 7 because I'm intending now to scrap the code base of 6 and start from scratch on Spinrite 7. Wow. So that's not going to be an update. That's going to be a complete Clean sweep. from scratch rewrite because, you know, it's it's been 20 years. I think it's time well, you've to start learned, over. You've learned a few things in the last 20 years, I'd say, that things that could probably be put to good use inside Spinrite. <laughs> and, and Spinrite still runs on the yeah. text page. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a text UI. There's nothing so wrong with I the text page. I, it works just fine, uh, but I think it's time to give people buttons and, you know, <sighs> drop down menus and things that they're used to. I, I, I have it running on a screen in the back of my lab. It just it just reminds me. The little, I see that little progress <laughs> bar. It's like hope, hope flowing on my on my computer. Now, Steve, Steve I, I do have to say I represent the chat room and they've been screaming at me that they, you know, why hasn't Steve posted his his notes? So if, if you want to give them your notes, uh, now would be a good time to tweet it out. The other thing is I've also been informed by the chat room that as fast as SSDs become after running spin right on them, they're still not fast enough to keep up with the number of goals that Germany is scoring on Brazil. I think it's 5-0 <laughs> now, so... Go figure. Ooh, I know it's a little. Wow, oh, and yeah, like twenty six, twenty seven minutes in. Now, isn't the, Brazil a good team? Brazil's a great team. Like, yeah. yeah. Go figure. Wow. Oh yeah, sorry. Spoiler. I said, let me just back that up. Spoiler. <laughs> now, folks, when we come back, we're going to be going straight into Patch Tuesday. We're going to be talking a little bit about how Microsoft foiled what they thought was saving the internet and all those other wonderful, wonderful things. But before that. Let's take just a moment to talk about the first sponsor of this episode of Security Now, and that's IT Pro TV. Now, one of my other shows, This Week in Enterprise Tech, I always get asked by people who are enthusiastic about network technology, how do I get into to this? How, how, how do I get into the game? How do I make this a career? How do I find out if this is a career that maybe I want to do? Well, the thing that we've always told them is eh, learning's not all that easy. You kind of want to sign up with a group of people who actually know what they're doing, start tinkering. But no, now we've got another way to do it. It's IT Pro TV. It's a one-stop shop to find all the information that you ever wanted to know about IT. That's right, hundreds of hours of contents. Now with 30 hours being added each week. They have a growing episode library with video courses on Apple, Microsoft, Cisco, and more, including A+, CCNA, Security+, and MCSA, CISSP, now with Linux+, Apple certification, and more. Courses covered include topics like uh, well, network security, Linux, Windows, OS 10 support for desktops and servers, and more. Their episode library is organized by exam objectives, which means if you are trying to get into the IT field, you pick the group, the path that works for you, and it will feed the information at a time and a pace that works for you. IT Pro TV hosts tell engaging stories and share their experience. These are real-world folks. It's not just an instructor who's been sitting in the back of a room reading a book. These are people who have been in the field who know the information that you need to know. It makes it easier for you to remember the content and the technologies as opposed to just reading a how-to guide. 
Now, even if you're already studying with a book or enrolled in a certification course, this is a fantastic supplement to learn at your own pace. Shows are streamed live and are available on demand worldwide to your Roku, your computer, or your mobile device. In other words, you get to watch what you need when you need it on the device of your choice. IT Pro TV has one low monthly price to give you access to all membership uh, features with updates daily. And it's comparable to the cost of a study guide, much cheaper than going to IT Bootcamp. They have no hassle, no no must, no fuss, easy cancellation policies, and you get direct interaction with host via live chat during the show and web Q&A specific to study topics. In fact, if this approach sounds familiar, it's because they're friends of the Twit TV network. They, they've been in this brick house before they started advertising with us, and they built their model around what they do, but, but they focused on IT. They have over 10 years of experience in IT learning, and they were inspired by Leo, so you know that they learn from the best. They've also added a new web interface and learning management system to track your progress so you know how much you're getting out of the lessons. A virtual machine sandbox lab environment for hands-on practice gives you the ability to play with the equipment that you see in the lessons without actually having to go out and buy it. It's really the best of both worlds. The advent and the, the quickness of online, but the thoroughness of having the hardware. They also have measure up practice exams, which are included with your subscription. It's a $79 value. And annual subscribers can now download episodes and audio only MP3s for offline consumption. Corporate accounts are now available for departments and companies. Check out the corporate group pricing link at the bottom of the pricing page. IT Pro TV has had an amazing response from corporate IT departments wanting to get a subscription for their team members so that they can refresh their IT training. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to check out IT Pro TV slash security now and upgrade your brain with the most popular certifications recognized by employers. There's also a free preview on the site if you want to check out some of their videos or their live stream to see if it's for you. Subscriptions are normally $57 per month or $570 for the entire year, but we've got a special offer because they're huge fans of Twit and they want our audience to learn. If you sign up now and use the code SN30, you'll receive 30% off your subscription for the lifetime of your account. That's less than $40 per month or $3.99 for the entire year. That's itpro.tv slash security now. itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30 to receive 30% off. And we thank itpro.tv for their support of security now. Now, Steve, we've got people clamoring in the chat room to talk a little bit about Patch Tuesday. You want to start us off? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned last week, since last Tuesday was July 1st, this is the earliest second Tuesday of the month possible. And uh, I haven't seen the patches yet. Um, uh, I got the email from Microsoft after they announced, as we talked about last week, that they were no longer going to be sending email because of the Canadian anti-spam uh, legislation. St I mean, it sounded like that was just some strange misfire at, uh, you know, some, you know, somehow in, in their end because they quickly reversed themselves. Um, I got first an email saying, oh, by the way, we're going to resume sending you emails because uh, we changed our mind. And then I got the announcement a few hours ago uh, about the content of this uh, Patch Tuesday. There were a ton of fixes 
or Internet Explorer. Essentially, it boils down to uh, two critical uh, lumps of patches, three that Microsoft rates as important and one moderate. Of the two critical ones, one was a remote code execution vulnerability in IE. Microsoft wrote, this security update resolves one publicly disclosed vulnerability and 23 privately reported vulnerabilities in an Internet Explorer. So a total of 24 in that one bundle. Of course, they called it their cumulative security update for IE, as they always do. And, and as usual, it's the, the, Microsoft says the most severe of these vulnerabilities could allow remote code execution if a user views a specially crafted web page using Internet Explorer. Um, an attacker who successfully exploited these vulnerabilities could gain the same user rights as the current user. So, you know, as always, that it, it, you're much better off using your PC not with admin privileges as a standard user. And you know, although it's, you know, it's more hassle, uh, normally, you know, you only need to, to have admin privileges, of course, to, to install drivers and to install some software. So, boy, you know, it, it just over and over and over we see examples where not running as an admin user saves you. It's just, you know, the, the software that can, can do bad things can only do them on your behalf. And if so, if you've deliberately restricted what you yourself can do, you're you're curtailing what what malicious software can do. Now, Steve, that that zero three seven, that's just an extension of the browser pivot that we saw like six months ago, right? I mean, that's is is that the same flaw, or is this a, a, a new wrinkle on that flaw? I've not looked any further than than just uh, because th- there were like about half of these twenty three. Um, looked like they were remote code executions and they 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 said they were a memory corruption vulnerability so i you know i just didn't go any further it's like okay fine i mean everyone who listens to this podcast knows that ie should really not be your first browser of choice anyway you should be using firefox or chrome and preferably running with scripts disabled and selectively enabling scripting where you know you need it uh, just for the sake of, you know, getting a page to run that doesn't run without scripting. So uh, then 038 is the second one, the second of the critical ones, which is also a remote code execution vulnerability. Again, we don't know much about this. Uh, all we're told at this point is that that a Windows journal file, uh, if you a maliciously crafted Windows journal file can be used to perpetrate a remote code execution. So, uh, you know, again, we don't know anything more about it than than that's all they're saying that it, it would allow you it would allow a bad guy to somehow you know get privileges again of the uh, current user if you open a specially crafted journal file, and then you know the three important things. There's a vulnerability in on-screen keyboard that could allow. Uh, privilege elevation, uh, vulnerability in ancillary function driver, the AFD, which is one of the DLLs I've I've seen in Windows for years that could allow elevation of privilege and a direct show problem as well. So, again, you know, it's time to update. 
Wow. Everyone who still has Windows, which you can update. <laughs> yeah, if you're in XP, it's time to just cry. Just cry a little bit. Yeah, and I have some. In, I'll follow up on a on a question that we're going to cover today about that because it looks to me like Microsoft has already disabled uh, the little trick that oh. has been used since since April. So I, I did that. I, I set my uh, my some, one of my XP laptops to to report that it was Windows embedded, and it worked. It was amazing. So you're telling yep. me I can't do that anymore? I think I think that that jig is up. I think we've got you know three mm. three what uh, April May and June. We got you know three months worth of extension. Uh, it would have been nice if it had been five years, but no. So okay, Microsoft did something that caught the attention of of the the, the press and the industry only because it was really needlessly heavy handed, and it it's, it feels to me like like there's some uncoordination. Among Microsoft, we saw this, for example, with this weird email announcement where they were going to stop sending the security announcements, and then within a couple of days they said, "Oh, never mind. We, you know, we're not going to after all." Similarly, they they essentially got a court order to take the 22 domains from a dynamic uh, DNS provider. Without any notice, the, um, all of their uh, four million website domains went dark. So, so th- this also um, th- this I was mentioning we didn't get to talk to uh, to talk about last week. So I wanted to. It's noip.com is the site, and so on. The beginning of the week of of the fourth of July week, Monday, June thirtieth, uh, they 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 announced we want to update all of our loyal customers about the service outages that many of you are experiencing today and frankly it's it's all of you uh uh they wrote it's not a technical issue this morning microsoft served a federal court order and seized 22 of our most commonly used domains because they claim that some of the subdomains underneath those those the primary domains have been abused by creators of malware we were very surprised by this we have a long history of proactively working with other companies when cases of alleged malicious activity have been reported to us unfortunately microsoft never contacted us or asked us to block any subdomains even though we have an open line of communications with Microsoft's corporate executives. We've been in contact with Microsoft today. They claim that their intent is only to filter out the known bad host names in each seized primary domain, while continuing to allow the good host names to resolve. However, this is not happening. Apparently, the Microsoft infrastructure is not able to handle the billions of queries from our customers. Millions of innocent users are experiencing outages of their services because of Microsoft's attempt to remediate host names associated with a few bad actors. Had Microsoft contacted us, we could and would have taken immediate action. Microsoft now claims 
that it just wants to get us to clean up our act. But its draconian actions have affected millions of internet of innocent internet users. VitalWorks and NoIP have a very strict abuse policy. Our abuse team is constantly working to keep the NoIP system domains free of spam and malicious activity. We use sophisticated filters and we scan our network daily for signs of malicious activity. Even with such precautions, our free dynamic DNS service does occasionally fall prey to cyber scammers, spammers, and malware distributors. But this heavy-handed action by Microsoft benefits no one. We will do our best to resolve this problem quickly. Well, this generated a huge amount of flack. And again, it's, it's, I mean, it's difficult to understand what happened. I read elsewhere that Microsoft was intending to somehow deploy their Azure service in like some dynamic domain filtering fashion. It sounds like it just completely collapsed, yeah. that it couldn't handle the demand, that they were, as a consequence, unable to filter. Instead, they just blocked them all. And so by Thursday, the day before the 4th of July, so four days later, the, the updated posting from No IP says, we would like to give you an update and announce that all of the 23 domains that were seized by Microsoft on June 30th are now, now back under our control. Please realize that it may take up to 24 hours for the DNS to fully propagate, but everything should be functioning within the next day. One of the domains, noip.me, took longer to get back online, but it should be fully restored within the next day. Um, is, your, is your service back up? Please send us a tweet and let us know. And then they, they sign off saying, we're so sorry for the inconvenience that this takedown has caused our customers. Thank you so much for the support and for sticking with us, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, this was just a... Uh, um, what Microsoft explained is that there were some botnets using this facility and they were dis they were determined to to take control of the DNS so that in order to get control of these botnets and I, I, it just looks like you know i mean i we I, I i guess we'll never really know behind the scenes what was going on whether it was too much uh, domain uh, activity for Microsoft to dynamically filter, whether this was just, you know, like deliberately done. We want all of these and, you know, we'll, we'll remediate them ourselves. You know, who knows? Uh, but I, I hope that yeah. everybody learned a lesson from this because this was just, you know, th this was a real mistake for Microsoft to essentially kill uh, a huge number of domains for a period of up to four days. Yesterday, I had a little chit chat with one of my uh, my Microsoft friends, uh, and he was basically saying that this whole thing started off with good intent. They they intended this to be like the takedown of a botnet, 
And the, right. but what was the problem is they had legitimate traffic mixed in with the malware traffic. And so they thought that they could they could drop this on Azure. They could run, as you said, the dynamic filtering, and they would allow through the legitimate traffic while blocking the, the malware traffic, and especially the command and control traffic for the botnets. Uh, they ran into two problems. The first is just the sheer volume of traffic. They weren't expecting that much from from a single ISP. The second thing is they started realizing that there are a lot of these these domains that are going through no IP that may be compromised and are therefore acting as either command and control or as uh, uh, attack vectors, but are still legitimate sites. Uh, so they're both. And they're so both bad and good. They're both bad and good. And so the, the way they had set it up was, so we're just going to find the bad domains or we're going to kill them. And it was, well, that's got some bad traffic, but most of it's good traffic. So what do we do with this one? Now, yeah. the, the, the issue I have with this is they were after two people. They were after Mohammed Ben Abdallah and Nazar Al-Matari, uh, uh, two black hat hackers who have kind of made a name for themselves for creating botnets. And uh, they they wanted the command and control for the botnets that those two men had created. And as a result, they took down an entire ISP. Now, yeah. you can say that Microsoft had good intentions. And actually, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and say they weren't just trying to be idiots. I think as you're, it was just really, really stupid. It was really ham-handed. They didn't do correct testing before they made the switchover. But what worries me is that they were able to use a security excuse to essentially seize the property of a competitor. They compete against no IP. They run Azure. Yeah. That, for me, that's a huge issue. You, I mean, it, it would be like Ford saying, you know, GM really screwed up with the ignition lock, so we're just going to take over their business for a while until we get them back on their feet. We don't do that. Yeah, well, and it's a, clearly a function of the court system. Some judge was confronted by a Microsoft attorney who I'm sure was very convincing and did a song and dance and got a court order. And yeah. you can do whatever you want to in this country with a court order. Yeah, he said he said basically, oh, yeah, yeah. So so here's the good thing. You're going to look awesome because you signed this order. And all of these customers are going to get all of the service that they expected, but we're going to kill a botnet. And the judge probably said, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I'll sign off on that. Yeah, you're right. And, and I'm sure they painted it to the court the way they expected it in the best case to work, which, of course, was not at all what happened. So it does sound like there were some lessons learned. And I hope observers learn so that they don't have to follow in Microsoft's footsteps. And I hope Microsoft keeps the people around who made the mistake rather than uh, having them leave, because uh, now these people have learned a valuable lesson. Well, we hope. <laughs> you can only hope. <laughs> so, so Oracle has made a sort of a strange announcement. And I don't know how to read this because they announced the end of, of their Java support for Windows XP. And it was picked up in the news and reported that way. Um, uh, ZDNet reported the regularly scheduled quarterly security updates for Java uh, on uh, the next one, which is set for July 15th, will not include updates for Windows XP, which is now formally unsupported by Oracle. But then when asked directly what Oracle plans to do, I mean, like, okay, well, what does that mean? Uh, ZDNet got this a direct response 
from um, Henrik Stahl, who is the VP of product management for Java, which says, and, 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 and Heinrich wrote, as you know, Microsoft no longer supports Windows XP and recommend their users to upgrade to more recent versions in order to maintain a stable and secure environment. Oracle makes the same recommendations to our users running Java on Windows. Actually, one would argue just don't use Java, but okay, they're not going to recommend that. And also has a standing recommendation that users stay current with the most recent Java security baseline. Okay, we're all we're all for that. Currently available for the public for Java 7 and 8. He writes, there are a few compatibility issues with Java 8 on Windows XP since it is not an officially supported configuration. We are looking at ways to resolve these. Okay, well, that's strange hmm. because they're saying they're not going to support it, but we're going to resolve them. And then, then, then he finishes saying, for now, we will keep Java users on Windows XP secure by updating them to the most recent Java 7 security update on an ongoing basis, which seems to say they're going to continue updating Java 7 for XP. Java 7 users, he writes, on more recent Windows versions can choose between Java 7 and 8, and depending on their choice, will be kept up to date with the most recent Java 7 or 8 security update, respectively. So there he sounds like he's saying 8 won't be supported on XP, but Java 7 will on an ongoing basis. But then he says that they're looking at resolving the current compatibility problems with Java 8 on XP. So I don't think they know what they're going to do or what's going on. And in looking and digging deeper into this, I found, I mean, there's still a massive install base of XP. It's like a third of, of the Windows on the Internet. And, and so, you know, people are not leaving Windows despite all the pressure on them to do so. So, so now we've got Java, which, of course, has been one of the largest security disasters in the history of the Internet is Java. And Oracle saying, well, uh, we don't want to support it on XP anymore. The problem is many of these XP users are corporations which are, are, are unable to move because of compatibility issues or just unwilling to move, but who also use Java. And so... Here Oracle is saying, eh, uh, we don't really want to support it anymore, but it looks like we don't have any choice. So I really think one of the, 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 there's a lesson that the industry as a whole is learning, which is you just can't force people to upgrade for your convenience. There is, there is inertia and there is a reluctance to leave something which is working. And, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, Against all of this, I was just reading Mary Jo was was tweeting that th the news about Windows 9 and that it looks like Windows 9 is essentially a complete capitulation to the to the understanding that 8 
has been an unmitigated disaster and failure. They're going back to the traditional desktop. And, you know, so I'm delighted because, you know, I was thinking I'd be going from XP to 7. There's no way I was going to go to 8. Now I could just skip over both and right. probably go, go to directly nine. to 9. Which actually works because I, I've been telling people this. I run 8 on all my production machines. I, I don't use the Metro or the modern UI at all. But what I do right. like are is what they did to the kernel. The, the kernel in Windows 8 is so much faster and so much more stable for for some of the high-resource usage software that I, I have, all my video editing software. So if they could drop the Windows 7 UI on top of yep. Windows 8, I'm sold, absolutely. That's, that's a no-brainer. Nice. I think that's what we're going to get. Apparently, 9 is a return to the look of 7, and you know, I mean, they're, they'll they'll make it available. And I, as I understand it, the way what, what Mary Jo wrote was that they understood what they did, what they tried to force on the desktop was the disaster. You know, having it on the phone is fine. So, so the idea will be they recognize they're not going to succeed in pushing desktop desktop users to the metro interface. We want what we've got because right. it's effective. So nine will be as ex- exactly as you say. It'll be the eight kernel with a, a traditional Windows desktop, and there will be Metro available. You know, so it'll be, bo- basically it, it'll basically be both. And so on on tablets and on the phone where Metro makes sense, you'll have you'll have Windows nine with that touch interface. Where it doesn't make sense, we'll have you know something that looks much more like right. we're used to. Uh, Steve, as far as as Windows XP and Oracle with Java is concerned, as you were saying, if you as you were expl- explaining the story, it actually made sense to me because I've seen this from Oracle before. They're doing this with Solaris, so anything that they got from Sun from that acquisition that's free, uh... they they don't like it because they can't monetize it really really well. And, and and Java is definitely one of those things where everybody <laughs> expects it, but they make no real money off of it unless they're litigating. So if yeah. they, they and this is they've got a history of doing this. This is a sort of a, a soft end of life. They don't want to tell people we're no longer supporting it because they know there's going to be a backlash. But as they did with Solaris and as they're now doing with Java for XP, they're saying you may run into problems. You probably just want to stop using it and go to something else. Uh, and, and I think that's just that's their mo. That's what they do. They well, don't they don't and, ever and, like being the bad guy, even though they look like. And it. doesn't that sound exactly like what the True Crypt guys did? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, they, I mean, it's like, okay, don't use this anymore. We don't, we're not doing anything more with it. So you probably want to go to somewhere else, As, <laughs> which is not to say that there's anything wrong with it, but you know, we're not going to fix things in the future. It's the same kind of language. There might be something wrong with it. We don't know. We're not going to invest any more energy into it. Yeah. Maybe yeah. work will learn from Chukip. So uh, interesting piece of news that I got a lot of uh, Twitter traffic about which was a crypto weakness that was discovered in smart LED light bulbs. Um, this was, uh, it, it launched itself as a Kickstarter project, massively popular. I don't, I didn't write down what the numbers were, but I remember reading that, you know, they like raised way more than 10 times as much as they were looking for it was like lifx i think is the I, I can't remember even the name of the light bulb and for me it really doesn't matter 
because I don't mean to pound on these guys. The, the nice thing is they responded very quickly to this. But this is, I think, a really useful cautionary tale about what's happening with the Internet of Things. And it connects back to why I was very glad in, in Apple's announcement uh, recently that they're getting into the home automation market because I trust Apple to do this right. Apple will not make stupid mistakes. They, they're, they're, even their first release will not have problems like this did. And and I'm, you know, there are a couple takeaways from this. But so so here's the story. Um, it's a very cool concept. The idea was that these the, these would be LED screw in light bulbs. You know, and Leo's talked about them where you can you know, change the color temperature and and so forth, and they would be in a mesh network. So the light bulbs, if you like have them many in the same room or scattered around your house, they would be talking to each other. So, for example, light bulbs far away from your router don't have to have a direct connection to your router. They can talk to the next nearest light bulb that'll talk to the next nearest one, to the next nearest one, to the next, essentially forming a chain in order to all be connected together. But one and and again, they talked about how easy this is to set up. Anytime something is really easy to set up, you have to ask yourself, okay, how is it working? How is it that I can screw in new light bulbs and they're just on the Wi-Fi network? How did that how did that magic happen? I can tell because, you. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. Because if it's too easy then you've got to wonder about the security. So what the engineers did was, or some hackers, some hackers took some of these apart and they found the the standard debugging pins, the so-called JTAG pins, which allows access to the memory. They found the pins on the processors in the smart light bulbs, dumped out, the, the memory, reverse engineered the, the microcode and found a static AES key. Now, I'm sure in the, oh, we're, you know, we've got military grade security nonsense that was part of this. They were saying, you know, AES 256-bit encryption, military grade. You know, we see this all the time in systems that are not secure. The problem was... They burned the fixed static AES key into the firmware, oh. the same one in every light bulb. So the instant the engineers, the hackers, saw this, they were able to decrypt the traffic moving between the light bulbs, and that exposed the user's Wi-Fi password. So the Wi-Fi password was encrypted beautifully, but using a fixed known key. Now, the danger is a bad guy knowing this could stand outside your house and easily participate in the mesh. And 
with any, you know, the moment there's traffic between the light bulbs, decrypt it and the user's Wi-Fi password will be there. So this was the problem. Um, to Again, to this company's credit, they immediately strengthened their security so that it wasn't this bad. But this is the problem. I guess, you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, one of the things here is that as far as I know, there isn't like an RFC establishing a secure protocol for this kind of application. You know, we've got all these secure protocols for doing all the kinds of common things we want. Well, this is still uncommon. And what we need is, is security people to establish a protocol for how to do this securely. And then other companies can simply adopt that protocol. And as, as we do, you know, as all the companies do who are on the Internet now, we're, they're using well-established, very secure, bull, you know, pounded-on bulletproof protocols. But we don't have anything like that for the Internet of Things. And so companies like this are just making stuff up. They're saying, well, you know, we're going to solve the problem because there is no RFC yet for it. Well, you know, we need one. And this is just an example of security through obscurity. They figured, well, yeah, okay, we're using a static key, but we're going to bake it into a chip that no one will have access to. They won't be able to read it and it will be fine. And any security expert worth his salt would have sat next to them and said, you know, you can't ever assume that anything you bake into an IC is going to stay hidden. You know that, right? Right. Uh, and and it's, this, this is easier to hack than, remember WEP, like WEP64, WEP128? That, that oh, yeah. you know, all you would have to do is send enough packets where you could decipher what the key was. This is even simpler. Once you decipher what any of the keys, once you figure out what that static is, any packet, you could figure out what the key is because you've got the cipher key. Yep. Whoa. Oh, I think we should design all our security like that. Yeah, well, and notice that this was easy for them to do. It, I mean, AES, you can get off-the-shelf code for that cipher. So this was trivial for them to do. All they had to do, well, you know, I mean, solving this securely would be tough when you have access to the um, uh, the microcode in the chip. Because I was going to say, you know, if you did an ephemeral Diffie-Hellman exchange, so you're dynamically establishing a key, the problem is if you know, if you're able to spoof being a light bulb then and a new light bulb entering the mesh is going to receive the wi-fi network's password then i don't see how you convincingly protect this so um so i I mentioned some takeaways the takeaways are it is it is imperative in my opinion that your your Internet of Things devices be on their own network, their own Wi-Fi network. We're now seeing routers that have a so you know a so-called guest network feature, and if yours doesn't, get a second router um, and set it up with its own with, with its own password um, that your hardware devices can talk to. My my point is, I just don't think it's safe at this point 
of we're we're like in the you know the wild west where you know you're going to get arrows in your back. Um, you just you don't want hardware. I mean, like you know Nest and Insteon, and you know everyone wants to be on Wi-Fi now. Give that stuff its own network. Routers are no longer expensive, as as we mentioned. They're they're now commonly having uh, multiple passwords. Keep that stuff off of your internal network. They're, they're, if unless people do that, and I mean the people here in the pod, this podcast probably will. Most people won't. They'll have one network. They'll screw the light bulbs in, and <laughs> and, and they'll and be then the, and the light bulbs will screw up their network. That's... I was just gonna. I was tripping. <laughs> you were over going that there. I saw that. I, in your I was eyes. going there, and I thought, uh, uh, do I want to say that they'll be screwed? I, I, I have no problems with saying things that will get me fired. It's cool. Don't worry about it. Now uh, let's let's take a break. We'll, we're going to be coming back with Steve Gibson. We're going to be talking all about. Uh, I believe we've talked about some certs in India. They're having a little bit of an issue. But before we do that, let's take some time to talk about the second sponsor of this episode of Security Now. It's Carbonite. That's right. Backup done right. A, a, a few weeks ago, I was uh, I was helping a few of my priestly friends uh, take care of their computers. They wanted them set up properly. And, and one of them was writing a dissertation. So I told them, look, you, you always have to make sure you have backups. I told them the rule of 3-2-1. I gave him a couple of pointers. And he said, well... I've got all my stuff in the cloud, so that counts as my backup, right? I mean, it's it's probably stored on three or four different computers. And I was trying to explain to him that, you know, that that's not a good idea because you're syncing it. So if you sync the wrong change, you're going to destroy all the copies. And you really need something that, that gives you a unique set of untouchable data that you use in case of emergency. And unfortunately, the cloud doesn't really get it, but Carbonite does. Now, do you back up your computer at home? at your small business, in your classroom, at, in your dorm room, as often as you should. It's it's really easy to forget. I know this. It's human nature. We, we know we should back up. We all know that we should have multiple copies. We all know that we should keep at least one set off-site. But when it comes down to it, it's a lot of work. And when you think about all the data that we deal with every day, from our personal documents to our emails, our photos, and if you do video work, that's a ton of data. Well, it's it's easy to let it slide. Unfortunately, it's when you let it slide that you are most likely to have a disaster that wipes out the data that you most need. With Carbonite, you don't worry about that. All your computers, all your servers, all your external hard drives will be backed up to the cloud for you automatically. And it's, it's not like syncing to a, a Dropbox or a OneDrive. This is designed to be a backup. That's what Carbonite does. That's all they do. And dang, they're good at it. Plus, with Carbonite, you can access your backed-up files wherever you go with the free Carbonite app. And Carbonite has really affordable plans. This is one of the things that just sets them out. No matter how many computers you have and no matter where they're located, Carbonite has a plan that makes sense for you. As much data or as little data as you use, Carbonite will make it right. So here's what we want you to do. We know that our audience is filled with smart people. We know that you all want to back up. We know that you all want to have the three, two, one protection that comes with proper backup. So we want you to try Carbonite. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. There's no credit card required. And use the offer code security now to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. That's Carbonite.com. Carbonite.com. Backup done right. Offer code security now. And we thank Carbonite for their support 
of Security Now. Steve, what's going on in India? So this is sort of interesting because I knew something was up days ago. I guess it was it was on the was it the second. Um, uh, um, ever since the whole certificate revocation drama, uh, I've had my eye on Chrome's CRL sets. Um, the the certificate that was being used for revoked.grc.com was manually added to the header of of Chrome's CRL set in order to block that certificate, which, of course, is cheating. So I changed the certificate. So it's no longer blocked and not revoked because, as we know, Chrome doesn't actually check for certificate revocation, even though it is a revoked certificate. Um, I wrote some monitoring code, which continually polls in the same way that that all of Google's Chrome browsers do all over the Internet, it pulls the master server for CRL sets and notifies me the instant that changes. And it was a few days ago, uh, I was actually, I was in the process of getting ready to, to run out for my semi-annual dental cleaning. And my, uh, my um, monitor announced a change to the header, meaning that something had just been changed in these manually added certificates. And because I was running out the door, I didn't have time to check to see whether this was the ser- essentially the, 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 the hash of, of, my cert- of, of my current certificate, meaning that they, had, they had, were now blocking the new one, which they haven't bothered to do for months. Uh, so I, I posted to the news groups at GRC. I said, hey, guys, uh, Chrome CRL set header just changed. You may know before I get back whether they're now blocking my, new, my newly revoked certificate. Um, it turns out that's not what happened. What happened was Google found that an a, a, a certificate authority in India was issuing certificates for some of their subdomains. Uh, and, of course, that's not kosher at all. Uh, the, really, the only reason you do that is you want to be able to undetectably intercept traffic to Google. So so this was a, you know, a... a a certificate, a, a certificate authority issuing uh, against Google's policies because they have no right to issue Google certificates, Google certificates, um, and they were found in use in the wild. Wow! So, so this update immediately shut down Chrome's um, Chrome's acceptance of the certificate. On Windows, because the other part of this is only Microsoft was ever trusting this Indian certificate authority. It wasn't in the security suite which Firefox uses, Mozilla, it wasn't in the Mozilla security stack. 
uh, nor in Android, nor in Apple. So it was only Microsoft that had this that had this Indian CA in their root store, and so uh, it was only so this CRL set update would only block Chrome from accepting the certificate on Windows because Windows wouldn't know not to, and this gave, gave Chrome the ability not to, independent of Windows, uh, which is exactly the way it was working, for example, with my revoked.grc.com domain. Um, and, of course, Google notified Microsoft, notified um, the Indian CA that, that I guess it was an intermediate that they had issued was being used to mint the certificates rather than theirs directly. So they lost, they, they gave an intermediate certificate to somebody who was using it irresponsibly uh, to mint Google uh, subdomain certs. So uh, a little bit of drama. Wait, uh, wait is, the, this, is a certificate the, uh, issuer actually allowed to do that? Can, can you grant that power to an intermediary? Yeah. I yeah. thought that and was against fact, the terms. In fact, uh, well, you're able to you're able to specify um, how many uh, how long the path is, and um, and intermediate certificates are now being used more commonly. Um, if you look at like you know all of the standard big CAs are not are are using a a, a certificate signed by their root to issue, um, and some intermediates are not able to re-sign, and some are. So, you know, th- this one had that power. Wow. Okay, that's. <laughs> I'm still kind of swirling a little bit here. I, I, I. The the only reason why would they, they would do that? I mean, they must have known that they were issuing certificates that were going to be used as victors for man in the middle attacks, right? I mean, that's that's the only reason why you would issue certificates that that don't belong to you. Well, and yes, and the time that we have seen this before is when an intermediate certificate was in some appliance that was being used to 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 mint certificates on the fly in order to, to do uh, SSL and TLS interception. So we talked about this eh, maybe about three or four months ago. There was another intermediate certificate that was found being used in an appliance that was able to 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 synthesize certs on the fly in order to essentially sign any you know to to make a, a, a certificate for any domain that you were going to that would be transparently accepted as long as the signer of that intermediate was trusted by your root in your OS no alarms no dialogues nothing would 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 be brought up the 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 normal way you do this is you're in a in a company that is doing this and you have to you have to add the 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 filtering cert to your own root store on your laptop so for example to get on the network you you know you you need to accept this certificate and what that does is that allows the appliance that's between you while you're in your corporate environment and the internet it allows you to trust the certificates that the appliance is synthesizing on the fly. That's the right way to do it. But it it is not transparent because you first have to add that appliance's certificate to your local store. If, if, however, the appliance somehow is able to get an intermediate certificate, which you trust 
then it's completely transparent. Dangerous as all get out because, you know, it can do anything. It's literally able to sign anything. So, so what's the takeaway here, Steve? I mean, Google has issued a cert revocation, which there's something ironic about Google issuing a cert revocation. <laughs> I mean, I don't, we don't have to get into that, but people who, who know about the story, they, yeah, it's a little strange. Now that they've issued that revocation, are, are, are we all okay? I mean, or, or do we still have to worry about these certs? Well, they, they've, they've notified Microsoft, and they've, they've only protected Chrome. And I know from my own experience that it takes days, actually, for the, for the CRL set to get updated. You have to be using Chrome, and there's some length of time. When, when they issued the, the certificate for revoke.grc, it was strange. It look, look, took, like, in some cases, two or three days before Chrome recognized that. So it's not like it's an instantaneous update by all means. However, it won't be until Microsoft updates their certificate store to, that, that, my, that, that IE and, um, let's see, IE... I guess it's only IE because I was going to say I think Opera is no longer using IE. Uh, Chrome is, but they've got their CRL set. And Mozilla with Firefox is bringing their own store along, and they never trusted um, that that Indian CA. So I think it's it's actually only IE on Windows is now now vulnerable until Microsoft responds. And I imagine we may that this is probably too soon to have been part of. This patch Tuesday. In fact, you know, there was I, I looked at all those patches. There was nothing about an update or blocking of this. So we may see something coming out in the next couple of days for Windows, uh, an emergency patch to remove this from the trust store of of Windows. And in the meantime, if you uh, do use Google, just make sure you're not ever using IE, although I think our listeners know that already. Right. And uh, I would say, again, don't just don't use IE at all. You know, you, <laughs> I was know, trying to be more diplomatic that, than that. Steve. That ought to be your browser, your browser of last resort. You know, use it when you have to run a Windows update or something that demand, you know, or Silverlight or something. But, you know, otherwise, yeah. no. I find myself using it a lot uh, whenever I get a new computer to download Firefox and Chrome. I... <laughs> Uh, it's to. the bootstrap browser. <laughs> Basically, the that's boot, what it is. Yes. <laughs> bootstrap yourself onto the internet. It's what I use before I get the real internet. Right. <sighs> okay, so, so can, can you give us something to cleanse the palate? Get away from horribly acting CAs. So, we, we t of course, with you last week, we talked about the project that I was going to uh, launch on the podcast here to survey the current state of secure cloud storage solutions. At that time, I was aware that there was a Wikipedia page for hard drive encryption. And someone tweeted that to me. And it's like, yeah, 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 I've seen that. But I did not know there was a Wikipedia page for comparison of online backup services. And it is stunning. I mean, it is, it's amazing. So... That's sort of thrown me off. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. It's st still worth looking very closely because that's the only way it's useful to look at, you know, the, the, the best of these systems. But 
for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, you can probably just Google the phrase because this is in the URL, comparison of online backup services. Wow. I'm sure that'll take you to Wikipedia. And it's an amazing piece of work. I mean, there's stuff there no one <laughs> has ever heard of. As it was, I was getting people tweeting, oh, what about this? And what about my aunt's right shoe backup? And <laughs> I mean, like crazy things. It's like, okay, well, I don't know about that. Um, so for next week, which will be the first of these, um, I'll take a look at that page. Uh, uh, basically, I'll figure out what to do in light of that that Wikipedia. There's no point in in us recreating that. It already exists. But what I want to do is what we really specialize in on the podcast, which is really, really drill down. And whereas, for example, on the Wikipedia page, it'll say, you know, uh, secure key management, for example. I don't even know if it, if it has a column for that. But and it says yes or no. Well, we need to we need to know more about it than that. You know, you know, I need to know more about it in order to trust it. So, so I'll be looking closely enough at these things to be able to explain exactly what this means. Uh, but. Uh, I, I just there's just no point in recreating this beautiful piece of work that exists on Wikipedia and is being constantly maintained and updated. So for everyone who's interested, comparison of online backup services, an amazing page on Wikipedia. Yeah, it's it's actually it's I mean, I'm looking at it right now, the amount of information they have and the breakouts that they did so that you yeah. can find all the minutia of each service to compare them against each other. It's this was a lot of work. This was some 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 people really put in the time to make sure that you had at least all the bold points. But as you said, bold points don't translate into actual service until you start looking at that minutia. Right. And, you know, and this is also that page is, well, again, it's, it's more work than I can possibly put in. Uh, and it makes and it's not the kind of thing that you just create overnight. I'm sure this has evolved over time with new lines being added of services and new columns being added of features. And when a, oh my God, when a new feature column gets added, they've got to go back through every single one of those services and figure out whether to say yes, no, or we're not sure, or you know, is it red or green or yellow, and and so forth. So. A huge amount of, of work. Um, I made a comment last week that I wanted to correct. I said silent. We were talking about silent circle. Uh, and the, the I think in the context of the black phone, maybe. Uh, oh, yes. yes. And, and I thought that was Moxie Marlin Spike. I misspoke that it's Phil Zimmerman who is the guy behind silent circle. So thanks for whoever tweeted uh, the update. Uh, and I wanted to just mention a new Maybe good uh, sci-fi-ish series premiering tomorrow on Wednesday on CBS. Apparently Spielberg is involved somehow, probably as an executive producer, which doesn't mean that much. But this is the one that stars Halle Berry called Extant, E-X-T-A-N-T. And there's sort of a creepy morphing of Extant into Extinct that happens. And all we know, and this is not a... Um, a spoiler because everyone knows this who knows anything about the series that she spends a year on a space station floating around in zero G and somehow comes back pregnant. 
So <laughs> as you we're do. not sure uh, as as one might, you know, when one's <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, being visited by strange extraterrestrials. Um, Steve, I, and- I, I liked your entertainment choices. But I have been fixated on one thing. This actually is always on the big screen in my lab. I've, I've got a 42-inch monitor, and this has been playing for the last week. Uh, Jammer B, if you could go to this. This is a real. This is from IP Viking. It's a real-time map of attacks that they're detecting on their network. And it is – I could stare at this forever. It, it is just fascinating because it gives you everything from where the attack's coming from. It's got like little from. phaser beams yeah. moving. It's, so it's, it's like an How animated cool. attack map. And it tells you at the bottom what, you know, what, are, the, uh, what are the IP address, uh, addresses that are attacking, what are they attacking. It'll tell you the services, the ports that are being attacked. And my favorite, I've been using this as sort of like my World Cup of cyber attacks. It will tell you the ranking of attack origins and attack targets. And strangely enough – the United States is are, it's typically at the top of both charts at all times. It is. Okay, how how do our listeners find this? Uh this is at ipviking.com. We'll make sure that the uh, the uh, link ends up in the show notes. Uh, seriously, this, I I watch this. This this is my entertainment. I just sit there with a bag of popcorn. It well, I mean it looks like a map of global thermonuclear war like from This is war games. You know, like, you know, like <laughs> like, like from war games. You know, I mean, look, oh my God, look at that right now. Yep, yep. some huge thing. Just, I think we just lost California. <laughs> Do you want to play Wait, a game? We're 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 still here though. So every once in a wow. while, you'll see this a massive attack going from Australia to Taiwan or, or vice versa. It's almost as if they're trading barbs, and it's typically separated by about eight hours. But when it does that, uh, because the amount of traffic, I mean, it, I think it's like eighty to a hundred gigabits. It just oh. it becomes this huge swarm and then just circles around the target. <laughs> it, I, it is utterly mesmerizing. It, uh, it is. We could just do this for the next security now. Just put this up. Yeah, I got to write it down. Okay. Tell me again. IP. IPviking.com. V-I-K-I-N-G.com. Okay. Very cool. Wow. Okay. Uh, I wanted to let people know, just, just as a public service, there is an interesting-looking project closing on Kickstarter. Uh, I, 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 I was, you know, I don't know what I was doing when I saw a, like, you know, down the right-hand side, other news items, and it said, uh, um, super PC that fits in your pocket. And I thought, what? You know, I mean, once upon a time, there were, like, little tiny PCs, and, of course, I have one, like the OQO uh, was a neat little pocket size with a screen and a keyboard. But of course, you know, tablets have taken that over. So I, so it piqued my curiosity. How can you have a PC, like a powerful PC now in your pocket? What would that be? Turns out what this is, is an interesting Kickstarter project, which is very close to making its I think it's looking for $100,000 in order to kick it over. It was at 98-something when I looked an hour ago. 67 hours to go. So um, just a couple days, a little more than two days, probably time for people to hear this. I, I just wanted to let people know in case it was the kind of thing that they would be interested in. The idea is it's a 100% solid-state module that you carry between docks. So the dock has the power supply, the fan, all your I.O. interconnect, you know, plugged into your keyboard and, and screen and so forth. 
And what you hold is sort of like a deck of cards shaped thing. And so you plug it into your dock at home, use your computer, then pull it out, take it to work, dock it there and and use it there. So again, I'm I'm sure it's not for everyone, but I'm sure there are some use cases where this would just be like the answer for people. Oh, and in fact, I'm looking at the page that, that you brought up and they're they're now over $100,000. Yes, crossed the goal. So you're going to get them, folks. So, uh it's on Kickstarter, it's Tango, it's called the Tango PC. Tango Super PC, a desktop Windows PC in a cell phone. So it's about the size of a cell phone. Um, it's got a dual core AMD, I think it was two gig maybe. So a strong GPU. You know, I mean, it's not going to be some kick-ass gaming machine. But for for someone who wants a like that that kind of portability where you unplug it from a dock and you take it to a different dock, uh, it might just be the ticket. So I just want to let our, our listeners know. Is it just like a Nook? Is that what is that what we're looking at? It's a different format. The new unit of computing. Oh yes, I think it is. It, it it is a form factor that I've not seen before. So I thought that was you know sort of an interesting idea. And who doesn't like the idea of a docked something? We all love docks. In fact, Jeffrey's yes. showing me his Nook right now. This is this is the one that he's been playing around with. And yeah, there's something that's just kind of cool about having a whole lot of power in something that's very quiet and very portable. Yeah. That's not a laptop. Hmm. Go figure. Okay. So there was a tweet this morning that I got a kick out of because this is the beginning. Um, someone named Bothyhead, B-O-T-H-Y-H-E-A-D, and he's just at Bothyhead, uh, at 4.38 a.m. on this morning uh, via Plume for Android tweeted, at SGGRC. I've just been playing with Ralph's Squirrel client and his test site. I so hope this takes off. It's amazing. The world owes you one. So uh, what this says is, obviously, Squirrel is running. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it is the case. Um, there are going to be endless, you know, squirrel jokes, I'm Either sure. Either squirrel we... is running or this individual <laughs> needs a little bit of help. It's, it's one <laughs> or the other. Um, I, I mentioned Ralph a couple weeks ago when I was talking about uh, the AES GSM uh, uh, cipher protocol and how it was actually in my interactions with Ralph, who is a German... Uh, student who was doing his master's uh, thesis on Squirrel and also implementing a, an Android uh, client and a test server, um, he was concerned about the the intellectual property uh, rights of OCB, which is the cipher suite I was going to use, the authenticated encrypted cipher suite, and. Uh, he raised some good points. I changed the spec and wrote, spent a week writing uh, in Portable C uh, an implementation of AES GCM so that all Squirrel implementations would be able to have one that was free, public domain, and completely unrestricted since I wasn't able to find one uh, otherwise on the Internet. Um, he's got it, his client up and running. A whole bunch of people over in the GRC news group 
the Squirrel News Group have it up and running and have been sending him feedback and li- like with what version of Android and what platform and what tablet and so forth. So it's beginning to happen. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's all I've been working on. I'm working on the reference Windows client uh, and working very as hard as I can to get to the protocol portion uh, because uh, I just want to ratify the protocol, which is at this point still, uh, you know, pro forma uh, until I have a chance to to nail it down. Uh, but it is the case that uh, the squirrels, the squirrel system works and uh, it's working. So uh, uh, just a nice little bit of good news. So for all the people who have been pounding and hounding uh, Steve Gibson on whether Squirrel will be up and running, hey, go play. Yeah, I'm still not done with mine, but I'm I'm getting close. I'm I'm working on. I've got all of the file system stuff. All the UI is in place, uh, and I'm I'm moving forward as quickly as I can. What's been the most difficult part about that entire project? Um, it's really the UI. Uh, I mean, it's for for example. Mine's Windows hosted, and I want to make it so simple to use that uh, that that anyone can use it. So you you run the client, and it says I didn't find any squirrel identities on this system. Well, that means that it has to know where to look. Well, I decided by default they would be under the My Documents folder in a Squirrel SQRL subdirectory because that's, t- that's, that's a good per-user place for them to be. And, and the, in, in a corporate setting uh, where people are roaming, their folder tends to find them, you know, of their documents. So that means their identity would find them. But then some people want to be able to use Squirrel in a portable mode where they would have it on a USB stick, which they would bring to someone's computer. That means their identity need that their Squirrel identity needs to be there with the client, with the Squirrel client. Um, and then some people said, yeah, but you know, there ought to be some way to override that so that for specific corporate environments, we could specify where the identity is going to be. So I said, okay, then we'll use the current working directory also. So, so now there's three places my Squirrel client needs to look for identities. It needs to look at a Squirrel subdirectory in whatever is the current My Documents folder. It needs to look in the, in the client's own execution directory and in the current working directory, which, by the way, you, uh, you're able to use shortcuts in order to like easily through a UI, set that to be anything you want. So, so you can, it'll be in any of those three places. So that's good, except what if there's a name collision? Because now you've got different directories and you could have people who've, who've named their identities the same. So I have to handle that. I've got to, you know, it's like all of the plumbing of this, just, you know, I mean, the, the, the cryptography is relatively simple. It's all of the UI and dealing with users and like when someone says, I want to create a new identity. Well, okay, wait a minute. Do you understand that the whole point of this is you don't need an identity per site. You just need one identity and Squirrel creates anonymous identities for you per website. So there's also this making sure someone who don't, you know, no RTFM, so somebody who isn't 
up to speed who just, you know, who's, you know, like, like the family guru said, oh, go use Squirrel. I need to make sure they sort of get a tutorial automatically. So it's all of that. I mean, it's been, that's, that's where the time has gone or is going at the moment, although I'm, I'm nearing the end of that because uh, I've solved all these problems. Fantastic. Uh, Steve, I, I did. Uh, I, I saw this in the notes, and I, I'm actually curious about this too. They, you had a user who contacted you about running Spinrite on a BitLock drive, and yes, it, it shouldn't matter, right? It absolutely does not matter. Uh, I just wanted to make sure people knew that. Uh, a, a Kevin Markin, I ran across this in the mailbag this morning when I was pulling our our, our Q and A questions together. He says, "Hi, Steve. I listen to Security Now every week." I have looked a bit, but have now, I guess he, he meant not found anything about how Spinrite will handle a Microsoft BitLocked drive. Can Spinrite work the same on a BitLocked drive as a non-BitLocked drive? Can I run Spinrite against a BitLocked drive? Signed, Kevin. And the answer is yes. Uh, just as with TrueCrypt, um, the, the, Spinrite will see the partition table and that will tell it where the partition is, and that's all it needs. Spinrite does not care what your data is at all. Spinrite 7 will be able to do that optionally. That's some of the next generation things I'm going to bring into 7 is I'm going to fully tackle the full file system recovery and file level recovery. So Spinrite 7 will be file system aware when it has access to the file system. But, you know, we, we, we've talked many times about, for example, Spinrite recovering TiVo drives, where, you know, TiVo is Linux on a power PC where the byte order is swapped. And it, believe me, it has no idea what's on the drive, but it recovers it anyway. So similarly, Spinrite can recover BitLocked and TrueCrypt or any other hard drive encrypted drive because it doesn't care what's there. It just makes the drive readable again. Yeah, it's so low level that it's not looking for data. It's just looking for sectors. It's looking for what's actually exactly. on, the, on the disk. Exactly. Uh, Steve, I am afraid that I sidetracked you so much that this Q&A <laughs> episode has very little Q, probably not a whole lot of A. <laughs> shall, we, shall we jump at least a little bit into this? Yeah, I I would say I'm looking at the clock. Why don't we we have like 12 minutes before three? Uh, but that'll still give us a good and really great podcast. And we'll any questions we don't get to, we'll we'll cover either next week or the week after. We'll get to it eventually. Yeah. All right, lead us off. Um, okay, so Shane Elliott tweeted uh, on Twitter. He said uh, at sggrc, "Hi Steve, big fan of security now." Was wondering if you know a reliable shared hosting provider good for developers. I'm using Media Temple now, but I like to shop the competition every few years in tech to find possible alternatives. Thanks. And actually, I'm glad I had you here, Padre, because I thought, you know, I'll bet, I'll bet that you know. Um, my my traditional go-to hosting provider has always been DreamHost who has been, like, in the old days, was really good. I thought something happened to them. Maybe it was that they got acquired by somebody else. I, I just, I don't remember what happened. But who do you like for, like, you know, tech-level, developer-friendly 
uh, hosting uh, website hosting providers? You know, the one that I've been using over the last couple of years, and I, th- it gets a lot of bad press for some uh, early problems that they had with developers, but it's one and one. Uh, it's not the cheapest provider, and it's not the most full-featured provider, but they've always been able to give me anything I want. And they're, they're actually really, really quick when, when you need to change something because you're testing uh, a new feature or a new site. Uh, I've probably been working with them for at least, what, eight years, nine years now? Uh, so, yeah, that's that's definitely on on the, the top for number one. Uh, as far as developing individually, if I was going to go a step up from, from that, um, depending on how much you want to, to pay, Rackspace and uh, CenturyLink both have really, really good plans for high-end development, uh, but you are going to pay for them. So, I mean, you know, there, there's a bunch of providers in between the two, but those... Those are the ones that I've used in the past with really good results. Great. Thank you. I think that's that. Uh, that's exactly what I was hoping to get from you. Um, we got a, I got a note from Ken in Pennsylvania who wonders about tricking XP into five more years. Aww. He says, <laughs> yeah. He said, hello, Steve. I've, I've seen on the Internet that there's a registry modification that will allow the consumer version of Windows XP, home, media center, or professional, to continue to receive updates from Microsoft until 2019 by making the Windows Update website think that your copy of XP is the point-of-sales version of XP, a.k.a. POS-ready. The reg file contents are as follows. And then he he gives the, the link. He said, I've just made the change on my test machine, and another 60 or so updates showed up on the Windows Update website. No reboot required after making the registry change. What are your thoughts about this? I haven't seen any negative comments from people who've made the change. Okay, so here's what happened. I That prompted me to do what I had planned to do, which was to make the change on a XP Service Pack 3 machine that I just sort of use as my mail station. I've got a, a little electronic scale and a, a dual a, a, a postage and a label printer, and I just I only use it. It's like a little turnkey just for for weighing and and preparing postage for things. So this morning I turned it on, I ran updates, and with and and it is XP Service Pack three. And it's been continually updated all the time. So I got an MRT uh, uh, update, the, uh, and I'm blanking on it, Microsoft. Uh, uh, oh, it's, uh, yes. Uh, re- 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 is it the, not the malicious software removal tool. It's the. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, MSRT, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. MSRT, that uh, I, I just wrote, uh, I wrote it down. That's why I didn't see. Yes, the, the MSRT update uh, happened and it wanted to update security essentials, which it then shut down. Security essentials was running <laughs> just fine. It did a complete scan of the machine. Everything was happy. And then I said, oh, we have an update to Security Essentials. <laughs> to shut which it down. Then it deliberately <laughs> turned it red and said, no more. We're that no is, longer supporting. 
That's Microsoft yeah. saying, oh, yeah, we noticed that our software is running. We should turn that off. <laughs> yes, it worked it worked perfectly. Then it said, okay, no, we're no longer going to uh, provide the service on XP. Oh. So then I added the registry tweak to to say that this is an embedded system. And I received seven updates from 2009. So old updates for, and it called it WEPOS, which is Windows Embedded for Point of Service and POS Ready and nothing else. I then rebooted, tried it again, nothing. So I, uh, there, I, I put the link on GRC server in case anyone else wants to see if they can reproduce this. It's grc.com slash five more years dot reg. So it's just the little tiny registry file that adds this one link to the registry. My guess is that that Ken did it before this Patch Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And it was still working. And that with this Patch Tuesday, they said, okay, we're foreclosing this. We're not going to allow people to update their Windows XPs for... This was supposed to go to 2019, thus five more years. But I think the jig is up. And in fact, when we first announced this a few months ago, I said to Leo, I was like, you know, this won't be hard for Microsoft to turn off. And if it becomes popular... They'll probably all they have to do. I mean, they they could still honor point of sale systems by looking more closely to see if it actually is. They were doing a very lazy test by simply looking right. for this one key being set in the registry and using that as the sole determiner of whether this was truly a Windows embedded system or not. And so it was a simple little spoof that you know was also not long lasting. Yeah, if I remember correctly, the registry key that they were looking at just had the actual version name. And as long as you had the right version name, it would accept you as a Windows POS system and would update you. But they can do everything – like they could look at licensing. They could actually request the licensing key at which point you won't be able to re reproduce that unless you actually have a POS license. Yes, yes. It's trivial for them to look more carefully. And all they had to do was update Windows Update so that it actually would look more carefully at what was going on. Yeah. Oh. So an uh, Ofer uh, Bannery in Chatsworth, California, had a couple questions. In fact, I think this will. he's got four questions, so this will be a perfect wrap for uh, yeah, I, I have four questions in one question. So this will be a perfect wrap for this week's Q&A. He said uh, he, he wanted to talk about the uh, EFF's open Wi-Fi initiative that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where the EFF is promoting openwifi.org and firmware, which they'll be offering uh, when they announce it. I think it's next month or later this month, because I think now we're in next month. Uh, from, from when we talked about this first. They'll, they'll, they'll be uh, announcing this at a conference later in the month um, for a router that's un, as yet still unspecified, which allows you to, to turn, to, to make open Wi-Fi available in a secure fashion and by having an open and a closed Wi-Fi network from a, from a single router. 
So we so so Ofer says hello, Steve. The discussion in this week's Security Now about open Wi-Fi brought up some questions you didn't answer. One of the questions in the Q and A came close, but let's start at the beginning first. The idea of violating ISP terms of service by knowingly allowing others to use the bandwidth is scary. Have you heard anything from EFF about what they're doing on this front? Okay, so no. Um, And I agree. That's a problem. Because as we know, ISPs often have in their terms of service your implicit and explicit when you say, yes, I accept these terms of service statement that this bandwidth is for you and your household only and that you agree not to be giving the bandwidth that that you're getting from them under the these terms of service to anyone else, not making it available. Um, so all the EFF has said there is they are encouraging ISPs to change that, to to remove that limitation from terms of service. And the EFF does provide a list of, uh, I think, of about 10 relatively small ISPs. When I scan that list, no big ones like, like Cox or Comcast or AT&T leaped out at me. They were, you know, Frog Farm and things no one's ever heard of before. So I was like, well, okay, it's... <laughs> It's good that those guys are on the list, but we need we need the people that the, the ISPs that people are actually using to be on the list. Then he asks, you've often covered how corporations use network hardware to spoof secure sites in order to read the traffic. Can or will open Wi-Fi enable private individuals to do the same? And I would have to say yes. Um, anyone who is using... And this is true generally. I mean, it's true at Starbucks when you're using unencrypted wireless. Even though this system uses encryption, it is only in, it it's uses an encrypted link. It is only encrypted to the router. So any users of this open Wi-Fi need to treat it with the same level of caution they would any open Wi-Fi, which is Unless you have a SSL, TLS, HTTPS, you know, secure tunnel connection to servers, then you can't trust it. I mean, it's it's still you you have to assume that this is going to be open and and non encrypted and sub subject to sniffing, perhaps by the people who are offering the service. I mean, that's really the danger is that, you know, whoever is offering this open wireless connection could be watching everyone who uses it. So you absolutely have to treat it with, with, under that assumption. Third question, will this guest network be forced to use the same DNS service configured on the private side? I could imagine someone not wanting their kids to figure out how to escape the neighborhood. So they block <laughs> DNS to Google Maps. Will I not be able to connect to Google Maps using their guest access? Um, I don't know for sure. We'll have to wait to see how the firmware works. It is certainly possible for firmware to deliberately block and or redirect DNS. That's easily done. Um, but normally, routers 
will allow you to configure your own DNS locally and will honor DNS traffic going to servers other than the ones that you know it's offering through its DHCP service. So I would guess that you could manually override DNS uh, and not be forced to use theirs, but it is possible that they could, they could force otherwise. I would just be surprised if they did, especially coming from the EFF. That is with firmware coming from the EFF. And lastly, in a crowded environment, such as a large apartment building, he asks, if there's only one open Wi-Fi access point that everyone uses, wouldn't that impact the speed available to everyone connected? I don't suppose hardware design for home use has much in the way of muscle specification. And this is that, that was my favorite question only because I forgot to mention this when we discussed it. One of the cool features for an individual who wants to offer this is that this firmware has a, a bandwidth limiter built into the open Wi-Fi side. So you are able to partition bandwidth so that, so that the user is able to, to use the, the, the visiting side is able to use bandwidth that you're not using, but you get priority access and you're able to set a, a minimum allocation that they are always able to get, but, but, and they get any that you're not using, but you have first dibs on the bandwidth. So that's a, a really slick feature of of this firmware that I failed to mention, which I think you know is clearly important. You, it, it, for example, if you were in an apartment building with this open Wi-Fi router, you wouldn't want the whole building using your bandwidth and starving you of ever being able to get any. So this thing works on a priority basis where the owner of the router gets first access to the bandwidth and the 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 freeloaders for lack of a better term get what's left over. Right. That's so decent that's decent QoS. Uh, but I, I will say that uh, it's it's very easy for you to go ahead and prioritize the bandwidth for the owner of the router or the access point. However, there is a physics limit here, and that is if you have too much RF in the air at the same time, ah, there is no yep. prioritization over RF energy. So if, if there are so many clients or so many APs operating at the exact same frequency on the same channel, you will see a degradation. But that's easily fixed as long as you know how to fix Wi-Fi, how to properly configure. Right. Well, and it's interesting, too, because we sort of forget that this is also Ethernet, and Ethernet mm -hmm. is about packet collision. And, you know, we're all using Ethernet where packets collide and they back off and retransmit. And, of course, Wi-Fi is using a shared medium, too. In this case, the air mm -hmm. is the shared medium. And, and, and as you say, if everybody's on Channel 11, then packets are going to collide. And we do know the one thing Ethernet does not do well is when... It, when, when you get packet saturation, it fails rather badly. That is, you know, you end up, if, you, if two packets collide and then they both back off random amounts, but when they try to retransmit, they collide with either themselves again or other packets, then they back off and try again. And you end up with like, you know, your, your utilization really drops 
at, at some point. That's the one the one failing of a shared medium like Ethernet where it, it just uses uh, packet co- uh, collision and random backoff in order to to uh, you know manage contention for uh, a single resource. I think our, our old networking guys remember the days of repeaters and hubs before switches became cheap. And uh, yep. you'd see the decrease of bandwidth, and it's not a smooth decrease depending on the number of users. Uh-uh. It's, it, it decreases exponentially because you reach that point where most of the traffic is collisions. And the same thing happens right. in the air. Right, exactly. Steve Gibson from grc.com. He is our security guru. Steve, it is so, it's such an honor to be able to sit with you and chat. <laughs> I've been watching you for so many years to, to actually be able to have the last two weeks to, to just chew the, the tech fat with you has been hey, uh, a dream know, come true. I, I did not want to forget to have you tell our listeners, this podcast listeners, about your podcasts that you do on the Twit Network because I got so many really great tweets from people who said, wow, last week's podcast with the Padre was great. I thought, you know, let's use this as an opportunity to make sure they know where you are. Oh, thanks, the rest, Steve. The, the rest of the time. Well, you're going to find me here a lot, actually, on the Twit TV network. On Mondays, you find me doing This Week in Enterprise Tech at 2.30 Pacific. I, I talk about networking. I talk about uh, data centers. I talk about how we're connected around the world. It's It's actually... It's close to security now. I'd say it's a cousin of security now because we don't go as in-depth on the security topics, but we do geek out over a lot of hardware and services. On Thursday, you're going to find me twice, 11 o'clock for Know How with Brian Burnett. It's a DIY maker show. We, we, we do a few fun things. In fact, this week, I believe we're talking a little bit more about our remote control project. Uh, I'm going to explain how you use ports on your home router and then... Uh, we're actually going to dunk uh, a computer into liquid and make it continue to work. And then at one thirty, you find me for Coding 101 with Shannon Morse. It's the entree into the world of the Code Monkey. And finally, on Fridays, 7 o'clock, it's the Late Night Show, Padre's Corner. Join us here at twit.tv. Okay, now, 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 now. Okay, if you're going to dunk the machine in water. <laughs> I didn't the, say water. The, the fan, I said liquid. The fan, okay, liquid, liquid, the, yes. Then the fans are not going to spin. Yet the liquid will still take the heat off the heat sinks. Uh, it, well, so, it's, it's even better than that. The liquid that we're going to use, the fans will still spin. They'll just spin very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun. Very cool. It's going to be very cool. We so out. they become water. They 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 become water pumps instead of air pumps. Exactly. They still move fluid. That just the fluid they're moving is nice. not air. It's this other nice. fluid. Nice. Yeah. But Steve, again, such a pleasure. Steve Gibson, you find him at grc.com. That's the place where you'll find Spinrite, which we talked about. I think at length, Spinrite has, uh, it's, it's been something that's saved my butt more than a few times. You need to find out if it will save yours. It's the world's greatest maintenance and recovery tool. Also, you'll find Shields Up. That's another one of his tools, which uh, I, I think I use that on a daily basis as well. You'll also find 16 kilobit versions of this episode, transcripts, and of course, some great information about security and Squirrel, soon to, soon to be released, as well as an active forum community discussing everything under the secure sun. If you have a question, you can submit it to grc.com slash feedback. And maybe your question will be picked up for one of Security Now's future Q&A episodes. Hopefully a Q&A episode that doesn't have me so we can actually do some Q&A. <laughs> Hey, no, uh, Leo and I have often run over like this, and I, you know, our, I, I think our goal here is to provide a good, 
meaty podcast, and uh, we did that today. So I we I have no problem with the fact that we didn't get more questions in. We we got two hours worth of really good tech stuff. So I think everyone will be happy. Thanks so much, Padre. This was great. Oh, thanks, Steve. Uh, now you can also find all of the versions of this podcast at our show page here at twit.tv slash sn and when er, wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. You can also use our apps or watch us live at live.twit.tv. We gather here, normally with Leo Laporte and Steve, Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Again, live.twit.tv. And as long as you're watching live, jump into our chat room at irc.twit.tv and you can, uh, well, talk to Leo and Steve. I'm Father Robert Ballas here in for Leo Laporte. Thanks, Steve, again. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks so much.